Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber, and I am talking on my brand new Yeti. Um, before I get into the podcast, I just want to make a massive shout out to um, Phil, my um, producer, who we've been trying to work out how to make my microphone sound good for quite some time. And considering he's on the other side of the world, he very kindly um, sent me what... what I'm reading is one of the very best podcasting mics in the world. So I hope that the experience is a lot better for you guys and for you listening. Um, so again, once once again, thank you very much, Phil. Today I'm speaking to Sarah Chambers. She is the owner of Little Marco's Swim School in the Wellington region. She's also um, a current member and really the driving force between the Champagne Liberal Business Owners Association. We got chatting and were introduced to each other following a an article that Sarah wrote talking about how the SME market is not in as worse a state in New Zealand as some commentators are saying. This has been backed up recently by a zero report that shows a, a, a more than 4% increase in um, growth in the SME sector in New Zealand. So there is, there is some really good news. And we're going to spend over an hour, because it's so interesting, how Sarah has a truly people-centric business. So without further ado, and this is far too long an introduction, I will introduce you to Sarah. Hello, and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber. That's not a good start, Sarah. I almost <laughs> did, couldn't say my own company name um, when we started. Um, today, listeners, we are speaking to the w- very wonderful Sarah Cham- Chambers, who I met only a couple of weeks ago on Twitter. And Sarah, um, for those that don't know you, and uh, why, don't, why don't you give the listeners a bit of a an overview of who you are and your journey about how you got to where you are now. Yes. So um, currently I am the owner of Little Marco Swim School. So we provide swimming lessons from kids that are aged from six months of age through to approximately 12. And we also teach some adults that are really at the beginner stage of their journey with swimming to, to swim as well. Um, and so the vision was is that we are in an island and we're surrounded by water and we have one of the highest drowning statistics of the OECD. And so that just never made sense to me. I was a competitive swimmer, played water polo for New Zealand, uh, passionate about coaching and coached at national level. And just the calibre of the swimmers that were coming through and the number of kids that were unable to swim was just actually terrifying. Um, So I decided I wanted to do something about that. We also have a problem in New Zealand where we used to have a school pool at every single school in New Zealand. And just because of the fact that people didn't have the time to volunteer to keep the pools running, the government gives very little money to the upkeep of that pool, considering how much expensive it is. And particularly in Wellington, the council changed the code for what school pools needed to do in terms of filtration systems and to keep the pool running. So it would have meant a $60,000 upgrade for each of the schools. So 22 school, yeah, it was crazy. So 22 school pools closed in the Wellington region over, um, over 10 years. And so that meant that the 
the opportunity to actually learn to swim wasn't there for a number of kids because the swim schools that were already open were sort of at capacity. They couldn't provide for more. So there are a whole generation of kids in Wellington that effectively have only a beginner level of swimming because they didn't have access and their schools couldn't get into places. So let's, let's face uh, yeah. it, Wellington has got some beautiful water, beautiful beaches, yeah. but you've also got, I mean, the weather can be a little bit rough. I mean, sure, you would, you would think that... There's, there's no, there's no, um, there's a correlation between not being able to provide that universal swim um, school um, opportunities and those, those awful figures that you mentioned just before. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, my father had been on the board of trustees of our local school for a number of years. Uh, We did have a relationship with the principal. My mother had taught at the school for 17 years and they had a disused pool. So they were a school that was such a low decile that they couldn't even afford to take the pool out. So they still had it, but just with no water in it. And they used it for rubbish and all kinds of things. And, And we sort of went into the school and said, what would it take for us to take over your pool, and they said, you just have to fund it all. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so over the course of four years, we got over $400,000 worth of funding, and we took it from a disused rubbish dump, firstly to an outdoor pool, upgraded outdoor pool that was painted and was able to be operational for four years as an outdoor pool. So we offered lessons only, you know, and so the fact that I still have a business is pretty amazing considering that we closed down months every year um yeah 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 what what do you think your your secret is I mean I think I know but what do you think your secret is I think that we gave a very different experience from what else you can get elsewhere and when you have that people-centered approach we had a lot of flexibility around how people could book it was very easy to do we tried to move mountains to make sure that people could get into classes where they could have their kids at the same time and all of that kind of stuff it just meant that people were prepared to give you a go and then also come back you know they'd swim elsewhere over winter and then come back to us over summer um and, and so then we got more money and able to make it an indoor pool um and since then yeah it's sort of grown from strength to strength because you don't have to shut down for six months each year so that continuity of teacher and all that kind of other stuff that was problems when we were outdoor don't exist now they're in an indoor pool (laughs) yeah we've uh we've got quite a few um listeners it seems from all over the world um some of them may not know as much about the Wellington weather. Oh, as you yes. <laughs> so that indoor, <laughs> the six months of indoor must be, uh, yeah, well, you couldn't, you could, you just couldn't do it without that, surely. Oh, no. So it meant that our business did shut down for all of winter every year. And then even with sort of the last two weeks of the summer season, a lot of people would be pulling their kids out of lessons because Wellington, even in summer, is only really about 20 degrees Celsius on other warmest days. Um, So even then it was a bit chilly. I mean, the pool was gas heated, but there's nothing if there's a cold southerly breeze from the Cook Strait coming through there, which comes straight off the Antarctic um, and the kids are swimming in that pool. So, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal that we've actually still we're able to have a business after the four years. Um, And now the thing that's pretty different about us too is we can still do outdoor swimming. Because of our roof, it slides open and constantines into itself. You're able to open segments so that it can be an outdoor pool if you want to on the one day of summer that Wellington is warmer. (laughs) You cannot beat Wellington on that one day though. (laughs) No, it's fabulous on that one day. (laughs) How's, how's the business fared this in this crazy, unprecedented year? Because of, I, I imagine that you haven't been able to run um, completely um, 
from start to finish as you would normally be able to have? Yeah, it's been a very interesting year. Um, and so in our term one, so term one for us is the first term of the year and we align all of our swimming with the school terms. Um, we had finally sort of got our numbers back up after sort of a year of not being so great. Um, and we'd got our numbers up to a really, really good place. And then suddenly it was like, right, uh, we're shutting down for three weeks at least. Um, and so that was super scary as it was for any business that has to close. And at the time when we closed, you just had to look over overseas to see what was happening in other places in terms of the escalation of the virus. So yeah. even with the lockdown, I didn't feel super confident that we may even be opening this year. You know, so um, the the really good thing about that though is that we got with the wage subsidy scheme that the government brought in. It was very easy to access. You got the money. I think I got the money within twelve hours of applying, and the process for applying was so easy. And it meant that I could pay my staff or had the certainty to pay my staff for at least three months. So for us, it takes us a good ten weeks to train up a staff member until they're at the level that we are happy with. I mean, regardless of whether other people are happy with it, with us, we feel that ten weeks. Is, is important to get them to the standards. So if we'd had to lay all our staff off and then to reopen, we wouldn't have been able to reopen in any capacity if I didn't have the staff kept on. So it gave me a whole lot of certainty. Um, I was still nervous about whether we'd reopen or not because effectively we'd been told we wouldn't reopen until level one. But um, we were open from level two. We were very... We had to run it in a different capacity. We left room for social distancing. We came up with a whole plan and strategy for how we'd be open. And I think that people, when they did come that term, had confidence that we were actually looking after their best interests. So lots of people trusted us after that term to continue. Um, there were a number of other swim school providers in Wellington that decided not to open because it was too hard. And I think that the best thing we did was to be open and to take the cost of doing things a little bit differently because people then knew that they would get continuity with their lessons while others have shut. As soon as it goes to level two, they just shut down. And for people, they wanted certainty. So we're, we're at a better level. Um, last term, term three, we're usually at about the 400 mark on average over the last 12 years, and we were at 500. So we've had pretty significant increase of numbers because of the continuity that we can offer, that regardless of the levels change, we'll be open. I think it was really important for, for businesses over that period of time to, like, their services, their products were, were still needed and still wanted. It was known by their clientele, their customer base, that they'd be taking a hit on margins. But that also showed if they did and they were prepared to open and not making as much money, they were signalling that money was not the only reason why they were in, in business. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the key reasons that I opened as well is like, yes, I mean, that term two, we were a good hundred down from where we would normally be because there were a number of people that coming out of lockdown still didn't feel entirely comfortable with going to community facilities or, you know, lots of people still stayed isolated and locked down themselves because they didn't feel comfortable. They had immune compromised people in their families. Um, but after we could show them that we were open, that we cared, we disinfected the place in between people being in, it, sh it gave people a lot of confidence that we were looking after their best interests in their health and not just open because we were open, you know, um, or because we wanted to mm. push through. And it was really good also for my staff to start working again as well. Like lots of them needed extra work and all that kind of stuff. So it was a commitment to them more than anything else. Like, 
you know, we, we, we didn't have to really... remember that as business people, don't we? That we're yeah. all we're all, this is a this is one of the only, in certainly in our lifetimes, a completely globally shared experience where everybody, whether you're a business owner or an employee, that the security of the future, if you had any, has, was taken away and some it's still not returned for. So there's been this leveling, this leveling factor. But we have to remember that what we're going through, that's what our employees are going through. And that comes out loud and clear when you talk about how you looked after your teams over you know, as as we came out of that first lockdown, and I, and I know as well during during the second amount of lockdown, um, you and I are together because we do share some similar views. I I met you on Twitter after I read a wonderful article that you wrote that I read, thinking, "Damn, that's an article I wanted to write," <laughs> and deleted and wrote and tried to do, and then thought I'd better not, and I'd better not put my head above the parapet. Because I, I certainly was seeing a lot of negativity around the SME market in New Zealand, um, certainly on, on LinkedIn. And yet your article was, it, it seemed to me, it's like oh, somebody else is, is seeing the positivity that I'm seeing. Somebody else is seeing small businesses do well in a post-COVID world. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about that article. And I know, I know that it got quite a lot of reaction as well. Yeah, it really did. And I had my heart out <laughs> of my mouth as I um, had the article published because I was waiting I for bet. all the trolls to come for me and tell me that I was living in a unicorn fairy dust world and that I didn't really know <laughs> <laughs> what I was talking about. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that that article, I felt that what we've had, especially as we've had an election as well, so I think it wouldn't have been quite so bad if we'd just had COVID, but the fact that we had the COVID period, plus we had a pretty negative election campaign and there was a lot of people that are called business leaders, and I'll say that sort of in inverted commas, that they paid a lot of money to advocate on the behalf of really big corporations, and yet they're seen as the voice of business, but they can't be. Lots of businesses have completely different needs and values and the difference between hiring one person in your business and someone that hires 30,000, they're completely different needs and wants. And I felt that a lot of what was being set, and especially after the election, we had a number of business leaders trying to set the agenda for the incoming government about what they needed to do, which was effectively aligned with national, but the majority of New Zealand had... um, obviously roundly decided that that wasn't the the direction that they wanted to go. And I felt that none of their values and and what they were saying just did not align with what was going to be the best thing forward for New Zealand. I mean, if you're a local community business, you rely on that local community to support you, you know, and if your local community isn't earning enough, they're not going to spend their discretionary income on coffees, swimming lessons for their children, no matter how important those things may be. If you don't can't put food on the table and pay your rent in a housing crisis, you're not likely to spend your additional money. And so I found that after COVID, people had worked out that they really wanted to support their local communities. We've had a number of increases of living wage by the Wellington City Council particularly and the minimum wage increases. And suddenly we're getting more people booking their kids in for things like swimming lessons because they can actually afford those additional extras. Um, And so I felt that when we had big businesses talking about the fact that they didn't want the minimum wage to go up, that would indirectly affect all local businesses who actually need that wage to go up in order to stimulate their local economies. So it's a completely 
you, you know, it just didn't make sense to me that we wouldn't look after New Zealanders because in turn, our economy has to be very local focused at the moment with how it's all going. Like we still can export and it sounds like all of our exporters are doing really well because they want stuff mm. from us and we are in a position where we can do that. But effectively, we all have been working from home, so we're buying our coffees from our local places. We're going to our local places because we're not driving into the CBD and all of that kind of stuff. And I just feel that talking about having minimum wage freezes, rolling back like there was some talk about taking away lunch breaks and all that kind of stuff. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. that yeah. was when, when that came out, I was kind of wondering, are they, are they just trying not to get re-elected by taking away everybody's lunch breaks? Because they know that they wouldn't have been able to handle the COVID um, crisis as well as it had been handled by, by, by Jacinda and her team. But I also don't understand how, what businesses, because obviously there would have had to have been businesses in the air that were asking for those things. And I just don't understand how that would have been something that would have done a good job for them as a business. Like for me, the answers to stimulating our economy and actually getting ourselves back up and running after COVID did not involve taking the lunch breaks away from my staff taking sick leave away from them in the middle of a global pandemic so they feel the need to actually come back to work and work sick, which is exactly what we've been telling them not to do. I just feel like all of that stuff, it's so, it's almost like punitive measures against your staff that you're not going to get that productive, effective economy that you're looking for because if people are downtrodden and, you know, like I just don't understand has, how that would win. Where where have the the austerity measures that happened after the global financial crisis actually done well? You know, nope. it, when <laughs> we we need it's been shown. I mean, economists, apart from neoliberal economists, pretty much say that if you're in a slump, you need to spend your way out of it. Um, we needed to focus on infrastructure. We needed to focus on better outcomes for people. I mean, we saw this centre-left shift in the what would seem the general zeitgeist, zeitgeist of New Zealand, which, ma which made those calls for um, austerity for the people at the bottom who had helped us with all the essential work and had kept the country going while we were waiting for yeah. to find out whether this was effective. They just seemed so tone deaf to every other conversation that I was saying, I was hearing. But yet on LinkedIn, that is pretty much the, what, you're, what you're highlighting is what I was hearing from SME experts. Yeah, and I also just feel that um, after lockdown, even if you talk to your friends who were employed or people that were employers, um, everyone was re-evaluating where their lives were because we had a whole shutdown for a month. Um, there were a number of people working from home, but it also sort of highlighted to us the kind of lives that we want to live and what mm. actually was important. And I think a lot of people have come out of that going, well, actually, I want to be more efficient with my work hours so I can spend more time with my kids. I don't want to commute for two hours. I am not getting paid enough for the time I'm not spending with these people that I either hated during lockdown or loved during lockdown. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, <laughs> depends, it could go one of two ways. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think what happened is people did a re-evaluation and they realised what was important to them and it was people. And so the, the companies that have supported their people through this time have made it easy for them to work, have supported their emotional needs and have made sure 
that they're safe and cared for the businesses that are thriving because everybody was a bit shell-shocked coming out of lockdown. We all felt a bit nervous for our futures, what was going to happen. It wouldn't matter what business you were. You you weren't going into lockdown feeling comfortable about life and having a holiday. Mm. So I feel like we're all so grateful for the fact that we did manage it well and that we are back up and running, that those businesses that are looking after their customers and they're caring about more than just the dollars, they're actually the ones that are being really successful now because people want to feel cared for and they want to, you know? Well, they expect to. I mean, expectations are really key to customer experience because once you, for instance, your high level of customer service and customer centricity with little Marcos is setting a bar for all companies that compete with you. So if any of your customers did decide to try elsewhere or they were talking to somebody who had tried elsewhere, they're communicating the expectations that you are creating which means that everybody has to, if they even want to compete with you, they need to start lifting to that level. It's the same with employee experience. If we're used to being treated well, then we expect to be treated well. We never expect to be treated less. Um, And the government took, the New Zealand government really took that to heart and delivered some incredible outcomes for everybody. They put wealth, uh, they put wealth second to health, which... You know, ironically, has been better for wealth, it would seem, for the country compared to those that put the, the economy first. Um, and so because we've now got that expectation of being cared for by a government, which is almost revolutionary, <laughs> and that government would care about the, the, the whole of the, the, the um, you know, the whole of the population. Um, we're now expecting that from our, um, for, for the companies that we you know, spend our time with, spend our money with. You know, these are very precious resources and we know how precious they are after the, the lockdowns. And so I think we're, we're expecting a better value um, exchange from those people that we are exchanging those resources with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, and it's also being poolside and talking to my customers because I try to be there in the first week of every term just to make sure that everything, all the kids are being booked into the right classes, they know who their teacher is and, and so that they've got a face to talk to when they turn up. And so many people shared their experiences with me about how lockdown was for them, how grateful they were. I mean, they were very common things of um, just people were so grateful to be back doing things that they couldn't believe that their kid was back in a swimming lesson after seven weeks. Yeah. um, Yeah, we were pinching ourselves in New Zealand, for sure. Everybody was like, hold on a sec. We went from a flattening the curve strategy to very quickly turning it into an elimination strategy because it seemed like it was possible. And holy heck, you know, there we were six, seven weeks after lockdown being able to connect with people again, which we were all craving, right? So you, you as a company, providing further connection. We saw this, we, we did a, a, um, a series of mystery shops after lockdown one, and there were two distinct types of companies. There were those that were incredibly caring for the customers who were coming back after lockdown. They were, they were intentionally interacting with them and, and, sharing the shared experience that they'd had while they were in lockdown. You know, we'd all been through this, business owners, employees, customers alike. Um, We were, those companies were 
showing that health and safety was number one. They were, there was somebody there to explain the social distancing rules, ask, you know, maybe operating the hand sanitizer, you know, having a real one-on-one experience. All of those companies were doing great when we asked them following the, the, the mystery shopping. All of those that just had somebody inside the shop, didn't really acknowledge people as they were coming through, had the signs up identifying what the social distancing should be like, but no one was actually taking that time to connect. Every single one of those companies, what, what do you think their financial performance were to a, to a, to a company? Yeah, absolutely. They wouldn't have been performing well. Because, Not performing well at all. Yeah, and I just think that we're always told, you know, the reasons for us being able to be bailed out by governments and things like that is supposed to be because we take the risks on and we employ people and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, we have to be responsible for our own futures and our own solutions, you know. like And so um, my article that... I wrote was in sort of response to the fact that there are a number of people that are saying that the government weren't giving them certainty, that the government wasn't doing this, that they weren't doing that. And it's like, well, what more do you actually, what do you want from them? Because just saying the word certainty, unless you have a crystal ball that no one else in the world has, no one can give you certainty. But what the government gave us was a level system. So it meant that as a company, I had four different levels and I knew at each level how we would operate the business or not. And all of my staff were well aware. We had a Google Drive that had, you know, the protocols in place. So when we had the movement from level one to level two, within half an hour, I'd emailed my customers communicating what that meant. And all of my staff, all I had to do was write, we're in level two, guys. And they knew exactly what happened every 10 minutes, they were going to spray, they were going to do this. And so I think that that's the certainty that the government has given us, is they gave us the opportunity to plan for what would happen in each different scenario that presented itself. Mm. Um, but there is no other certainty that people can give. And we've got a whole lot of the same businesses saying, well, they can't keep borrowing money, but they should borrow money and give me some. And, you know, the wage subsidy scheme was amazing. We've got the loan scheme. There are so many initiatives, a whole lot of training initiatives and apprenticeships and whole lots of things that didn't exist but have come into play because of COVID. At some point, we have to be responsible for helping our own businesses and our own staff. You know? I think it's, we, I mean, we, we were talking how, the, you know, the, the one of the key drivers of you writing that article was seeing the, and I'm, Got to be careful because there's a lot of these on LinkedIn, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not refer- and I'm not, and I don't mean every single one of them. But there were a lot of SME experts and advisors that it did seem like the only thing that they had to blame was the government's response to COVID. Yes, there was no personal responsibility, which I think again I use this word too often, but it's an ironic world that we live in. But it is ironic that there is. From the, from the side of politics, which screams personal responsibility, that there was no personal responsibility taken. Like I, I would, I would say that we know that this country's SME um, SME marketplace has. Um, we we have lots of failures every single year. I mean, it's it's really tough to start your own business, and I'm not throwing shade on anybody that's um, that struggles with that because 
gosh, our first two years at Halftime Orange were were incredibly traumatic, really, in many ways. You know, if I'd have known how traumatic it was going to be, I'm not sure I would have stepped forward. <laughs> um, but no one this year is failing because they don't know how to run a business. So no one is this year is failing because they don't know how to connect well with their customer. Everybody has got the the external excuses to rely on. And I... I, I, I think that there'll be there'll be a lot of the people that survive. A lot of lessons will be learnt, but I I do hope that there is some lessons learnt from those that are you know first first attempt in failure, first attempt in learning is what my kids refer to as fail. So I hope that some of the companies that are not have not been able, their business model hasn't fared well, and there are some industries of course that are just. Poor tourism, you know. Although, again, we've had a we had a many, um, and not so many. Many is is probably uh, what um, what our mainstream media would describe it. We we had a boom in local tourism yeah, over those hundred and two days, and the companies that were surviving, they were the hospitality companies that had really thought about how they could change. Um, how they could change their business model to suit the, the now very different needs of and the different types of customers that they were servicing and serving. <laughs> no, no. Of course, of course. Yeah, although some of those companies have used this opportunity to, it's, it's been forced transformation on a lot of companies. And those, it's fine. I've, I have throughout my career while working for other people, especially when I go through, when I've gone through redundancies or um, employee um, reshuffles, there's no, the, the only constant is change, Brenton. Um, you know, you've got to go with this. It's like that, that really is the case now. Like yeah. the only constant that we have, there is no going back to normal. You know, in the same, in the, the, the advice that may have been doled out to employees as they no longer have places in companies because of a transformation that was required by a company, those business owners now need to embrace the fact that they need to go through that as well. And it's funny, I've, I went through a big grieving process at the start of the year and I, 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 I was struggling. I'd lost my dad at the beginning of 2020. Oh, I'm sorry to hear um, 
Thanks, thanks. And I, I'll probably talk about it too much on the podcast. But one <laughs> thing that, that really struck me was uh, proved valuable was a model. Of the, I think it's called the Kubler-Ross model, and it's the five stages of grief. And grief can, obviously for me, it was quite personal, and it was to do with um, with with me grieving my dad. But there's grieving that goes that takes place after every redundancy. There's grieving that takes place when any of the status quo changes to an irreversible position. And that's certainly what I saw at, as we came out of lockdown one, the, those first two stages, the anger and the denial periods. And yet the, the sooner you could have, the, the companies that have been able to, to flourish seem to be the ones that have got to that fifth stage, which is the acceptance. Like if we accept that this is what it is now and we're not going back to how it was, then it's far easier to, to plan ahead. I think um, those, those ropes holding us back kind of disappear when we accept um, that the future is going to be different. And it's also a mindset thing too, right? There's so many people that have different kinds of mindsets about doing things. And I think that those that already have that negative mindset, everything's too hard, oh, woe is me, why do I have to do this? They weren't going to be successful out of that kind of situation regardless of what it was. I mean, I set up my business in, the, in 2008 during the global financial crisis, Um you know, so um, yeah. great, great work picking a good time to open a business. But at the same time, I always had the attitude that, oh, yeah, I think this can be successful if I do this or what's some other things that I can do? Because initially, you know, like all of the business courses that you can go on and the speeches that you can hear, always talk about diversity within your business, that you shouldn't be putting all your eggs into one basket. So it's a bit hard when I have a swimming pool that I <laughs> can offer swimming lessons, but then you offer birthday party hire, you offer event hire, you offer rage sessions where families can book in and, you know, use the pool. You can sell caps and goggles poolside. So you have to find other ways to to leverage your business as well. And I feel that there are a number of people that still, unless they can do that core thing, they don't have, they don't, they want to do as little work as possible, which I know we all do, but sometimes that's, that's the breaks of being the boss is that you actually have to try and find ways to keep the people employed or to make more money out of what you've already got, you know? And I, and I feel like a lot of people just have that really negative mindset in general, you know? There is a bit of that, isn't there? There yeah, certainly I think is. So. And there's a number of industries at the moment, if you look at even when we're talking about things like migrant workers, um, it's like, well, the market is telling you that the jobs that you're offering and the amount of money that you're prepared to pay for these jobs don't match. And so actually we shouldn't be bringing people over so that we can exploit them and not pay them their worth. And, and, and maybe you just need to change. So rather than hearing it as a beat up on the government for keeping the borders closed, those businesses need to evolve and leverage it and, and, and recognise that things have changed, you know? Like it isn't all up to the government to make decisions. And, you know, like I, I've just employed five new staff members because, you know, we had a number that are graduating from university and they're moving on. Um, and just even hearing people's stories and interviews and things, it's like we other places find it really difficult sometimes to find staff, but when we offer you know, good conditions, good training, a whole lot of other benefits to being part of us, we had 200 applicants. And they're all kinds of applicants that could pick fruit or they could, you know, because we're not considered a skilled industry. 
So we're taking people that don't have those skills and we're having to train them ourselves so that they are skilled and um, skilled teachers for us. But, you know, sometimes, you know, like if, if the price is right, the conditions are right and they feel that it's going to be something that's really worthwhile for them, people will apply for stuff. Well, that's right. I mean, there's there's got to... There's an expectation in that industry that if you're going to go down country and do some fruit picking, that you're 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 almost going to be working volunteer rates. That's that's I think that's the expectation because we know that there have been ridiculously low wages being um, being doled out. If we're now expecting to be thinking in a human centric way, which we are being taught to by the way that humans are being looked after better in this country. Well, then we're we're going to struggle if we're seen to be going against the evolution of society, if you put it like that. Yeah, and and I think the thing is, is that I've always, um, if we're talking about even like the Champagne Liberals group that you mentioned earlier. Yes, I well, feel, let's talk about that, by oh, the way. I was going to say. Um, <laughs> good, we, good segue. Oh, Very good hey, segue. Hey, you yeah. should do a podcast. I should, yeah. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think that the thing is, is that, um, I've always had a certain set of values that I wanted, that I felt was important about the way that I treat my staff, the way that I treat my customers. But it's not necessarily values about business. It's just what you feel is right as a person in terms of getting the most out of people. You know, I've played on numerous teams in my life and some of those teams have performed well above where they should have in competitions and there's others that should have won nationals and they bomb out. And all of it comes down to like people dynamics and the way that the person who was the team leader decided to run it, you know, all this kind of stuff. Oh, I'm glad you said that because because I was going to bring this up, leadership. Like I think that that's one of the, well, I think it is the make or break factor, one of the most fundamental factors in whether or not an organization is going to deliver good customer experience, good employee experience. It's whether or not the leader believes in it, whether it it aligns with the values of the leader and being driven by the leader, which you do with your, with your connection, with your, with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's the thing is that I'd always wanted to, and it shouldn't be something that I want to do something different, but effectively all of my management experience or how I learned about the way that I wanted to do things was with the absolutely terrible managers that I've had throughout my working career and the ways that they did things and the things that happened. And even if you look at the swim industry as a whole, when I first started in the industry, um, employing people, et cetera, there was a good sort of 80% turnover rate of staff in the industry because you know, just um, people were hired on casual contracts when they should have been permanent. Uh, they had to teach in a cold pool with only a rash vest on, the breaks, you know, just there are whole lots of reasons and being paid minimum wage for it. So it didn't feel like a career to people. It was just a means to an end. And when I started my business, I was paying $6 an hour more than anywhere else in the industry. And as a result... Wow. Yeah, because I just said, no, actually, we're going to pay a living wage from the second we open. But, Sarah, how can you afford to live yourself if you're paying everyone the, the, a living wage? Isn't, uh, isn't, that, isn't that what we're being told is going to be making small businesses just suffer and fail? Well, I did work full-time for three years because that was yeah. what I wanted to do. But I worked full-time for three years because I also had this issue about the six months off every year and how would I earn money in that time period. And it meant just – but at the same time, with 
you know, with paying $6 more an hour, I buy my staff a wetsuit to teach in because guess what? It means less sick days as well. If, you know, our pool, the minimum that a pool should be at is 26 degrees. A lot of people were teaching in that. Mine's 32. And just the difference in staff morale, the conditions and all that kind of stuff. And I'm aware of the fact that without my staff, they are my business. I'm not there. I'm the face that's behind the computer sending out the emails and things. But at the end of the day, I'm not teaching the children. Um, and so they were my biggest asset or my biggest failure, depending on which way I went. And so, um, you know, and I did try to teach in my swim school, but then it was a sort of a case of when I was in the pool all that time, how do they then send emails and give people that service if I you know, having to send them emails at 10 o'clock at night and things. So in the end, it was better to hire people in those roles, teaching the children, for me to be able to do the admin behind it. And, I mean, just you hear people complain, and I have a 15% turnover rate of staff because generally if someone comes to work for us, they will work if they're happy. People don't change jobs unless they're unhappy. People don't look – people really don't consider enough the costs that employee engagement has on a business, both externally and internally. Um, It it boggles my mind how few corporates track um, the length of time people work with them and where they come from. I read a report that was something like, um, and I'm I'm probably screwing up the numbers here, but it was a scary number. It was like three quarters of businesses didn't track the length of time somebody was working and work out whether, why it was short or long. It was just an accepted churn rate that people had. And it was, yeah, let's slightly try and reduce the churn rate, but this is a large cost that we just have to put inside of our um, our profit, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our uh, Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing it. I don't know why I can't think of the right word there. Um, the balance sheet, there we go. Yeah. Um, and they're not, they're not, it's just a number. They're not thinking of the human aspect, but they're also not thinking about the economic impact that it has on their, their company. I mean, I, I've had quite an interesting work history and one particular um, group that I worked for because I was in the um, fitness industry before opening the swim school um, and gyms are notorious for not paying more than minimum wage and just there are sometimes some exploitative practices depending on which owners you work for but one particular I guess it's seen as a as a a passion isn't it so we can people are passionate about it so we we I worked in the scuba diving industry and certainly when I was working in Australia there was that we don't need to pay very much there's loads of backpackers who are really passionate about what they're doing so we don't need to pay you a living wage or a minimum wage totally and so at this particular business they would rather I I pointed out I I got hired as their general manager and I pointed out to them that they weren't even doing the bare minimum in terms of legal requirements for breaks like nine hour days half an hour break no paid break had to finger swipe in 15 minutes before they docked the first 15 minutes of their pay but they weren't paid for that 15 minutes before just whole lots of things and they said oh well they can take us to court so they would rather take their employees to court than actually provide the right environment. So they knowingly were doing that, but just decided that was cheaper in the long run than actually providing the right places and stuff for people. I worked for a large company here in New Zealand who literally they had on their balance sheet how they would game the 90-day the um, oh, wow. 
fee. It was it was basically they they were using it as cheap labor. And they knew that only 5%, I think it was 5%, maybe it was 10% of people would try and get a settlement. Everybody else would be, it's our first job, it's a large corporate, we're not going to, you know, Auckland's a small city, so we can't go around suing people um, when we're trying to get on in, with our careers. So they would, they would know that 90% of people would just kind of put their tail between their legs and go after they'd had 90 days of no indication that there might be a... I've sat at a desk and seen somebody be given their 90 days after they worked so well. They was they would have been such a valued member of the team. And everybody else's morale went down because of it as well. Everybody who 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 could see what was happening and who thought that it was a crime. You could see everyone was like, this this just isn't right. That you've got a certain amount on your balance sheet to to um to pay off the people that do cause an issue, you you know that ninety percent of people are just going to walk away. I mean, that's that's a, that's a criminal use of somebody's passion, somebody's time, somebody's drive, and that 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 sort of behaviour can also knock people. It's got a human um, cost going forward as well on the on the on the people that it's affecting. Yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, you just get to the point where it's like. At what point do you realise that your business is only as good as your staff? And I think that's the thing, is that the reason that I've come up with, well, not even come up with the reason that I ended up with a people-centred approach was I knew that my swim school was only as good as the people that taught in it because they were the face for my business. And if they're having an absolutely miserable time, they're freezing cold or working in the pool sick and coughing and all of those kinds of things, it's a terrible look for your business. Yeah. It is. Terrible look. Or even if you look at, um, we just brought in um, effectively domestic violence leave in New Zealand. But how good would it, like, and people are fighting it and saying, oh, well, they shouldn't be given this extra leave. And I said, how in a customer service job could I justify having someone with black eyes in the pool crying because they're in this terrible position? How is that good for your business or the morale of the other people that work with that person? Your customers see that? I just felt like it was just such a short-sighted, you know, you know, just all of it is so short-sighted in terms of that the impact on your staff and definitely has an impact on your business. No. Yeah, no, you were you were you were so right. Look, I, I think it's a it's a much more extreme example of all those things where where companies go. Well, it's it's not my this is this is outside of work time. Everything that happens outside of work time, like your two hour commute, that's got nothing to do with me. But it's it's like why? How do we expect that kind of attitude where we're showing that we don't care about our employees' outcomes outside of the business, which is the only reason why they're working. Everybody's doing it to fulfill future outcomes. Our customers want their children, in your case, our children, um, safe in the water. The employees want to have the have an environment where they can teach with their passion, but also to pay their bills and to live a good life and to, to feel safe and to feel looked after. Um, when well, companies I- start accepting that they're, ju- they're part of the system that the, the employees are in, then how do we... You know, we we can start. Re- people feel when people feel valued. When people feel that they're valued outside of the company, when they're not with you, then you get ambassadors, like I'm sure you have in your business. Yeah, absolutely. And it just just if I think about the cost, like 
Um, what's really startling, so just to give some context around how significant that 10-week training is for us, because it probably to some people that are listening, it's like, okay, so you do 10 weeks of training, you know, okay, you know, no-brainer. But in the swim industry in New Zealand, you do not need any qualifications. You need no standards that you need to reach or anything. I can just open up a, biz- I can open up a swim school, call myself a swim teacher, and no one will ever come to check if I'm doing the right things. Um, that, How is uh, that good for outcomes? Totally. <laughs> That's and terrible. Only, and the only people time we've been contacted is just as part of general Wellington City Council Health and Safety where they come and check your water, which they do for everybody. So the only thing they're worried about is the quality of the water that the kids swim in, but not what's actually taught, not the standard of the teachers, not qualifications. There are qualifications you can get in New Zealand, but you don't have to have them to teach. So. Oh well, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got four, I've got four kids. Three of them are yeah. going through the system. I'm pretty sure. I'm. I'm pretty happy where we are. We've got um, Dean Greenwood's up in Massey, um, and they they've been very. I find them to be very customer centric to me. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, but I've never checked whether or not. Like I'm assuming if I take my child to a swim school that they're going to be qualified. I wouldn't have, it wouldn't cross my mind that I would have to check on swim school qualifications. That's we crazy. don't have to have any certificates except the hygiene certificates. We don't need to. I mean, the only thing that we have to do is police vet our people as part of, not because of any industry standard, but because the government has brought in rules around police vetting for children, you know, in the new Child Protection Acts. So effectively, the only thing that my staff need to have is police vet. That's it. So, so I just opened a swim school. And I hired people to be a swim teacher and no one has ever checked what I'm running with the kids, what those swim teachers can do. And so I just felt that a number of people, um, so just as I said earlier in the podcast, I hired five people. Some, three of them were experienced, but even them will still put them into training just so that they get to learn our curriculum and the way that we do things and the flavor of what we offer. Um, but for two, about, and for two of them, they're like, oh, how much training do I need to do? And I said, well, we'll just put you into shifts and once you know what's happening, that, and they were like, oh, because, you know, and every one of them had said that when they worked at their last job, they had to do 20 hours free before they got put into the roster and they weren't paid for the training. Well, how is that to make, what kind of investment is that in that staff member coming? Because they're only going to be as good as the training they receive. So with our staff, we try and have them from week one of a two to week 10. They work in exactly the same classes every week so they can see how we got the kid that was screaming on the side and terrified to a happy child by week 10, you know, so that when they actually do go to teach, they're really confident about knowing how to do things and, and not just have been given a snapshot of the swim school in that week. And so we've made a really huge emphasis on our own in-house training. We do our own performance reviews where the manager of the swim school goes to watch three of the, you know, three of your classes at a certain level and you have meetings with them and we do that sort of every six months. And we don't have to do any of that, but that's the investment we put into our staff because at the end of the day, we have a really good reputation for the staff we have. You know, and as well, we make that I wish I was. I wish. Um, I wish you were close to me. I'd move my kids straight away. Not because <laughs> there's anything wrong with Dean Greenwood. I'm not saying that, by the way, <laughs> if anyone's listening. But I, it's so one. It's so wonderful to hear a business owner that is so outcome focused for what I think are the. I, I think you can, there's a there's a 
debate that often takes place between customer experience specialists and, and employee experience specialists. And it's which one's more important, employee experience or customer experience. And I don't think that either of them can be separated. Like that is literally the power axis of your business, whether or not you have a business, is how your customers and your employees interact. That's the energy that drives a business's growth, longevity. Um, and when you're focusing on those, the power shifts. I think historically we've had that hierarchical power where the CEO is the most important person. Then you've got the the leaders, then the managers, then the employees. And oh gosh, the employees that don't sell, they're even less important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the customers who are well, they'll they'll come. Advertising will work, and they're, they're not that they're not as important as the employees. You need you need both of those segments to be really focused on. Like all of your employee engagement seems to me and sounds to me that it would have an incredible impact on the customer experience. Absolutely. And generally, it's quite interesting because people, when they're first booking in with us, will say, well, I think my kid needs this kind of teacher, you know, because they've obviously been at other places where their kid has had some kind of student experience. And although my staff aren't robots and they all have their different styles, they've got complete control over what they run in their lessons so that they can individualise it within the group. There's a number of swim schools that they just hand over a one-week-to-ten programme to their staff and they're expected to teach. But what happens if the kids aren't ready to float or what happens if they are ready and you've got to wait eight weeks? So we try really hard to make it an individualised response within it. And so we expect our teachers to be able to make those judgment calls, to be able to cater to the actual kids they've got, you know. So we want them to be really well trained because we have that expectation from them later. They're not going to just be a robot who takes a plan and runs it. You know, they've got aims and objectives of each of the levels that they have to get the kids to. And, and, and But it also makes it more interesting for them because they actually have that autonomy to actually, you know, use their expertise to get the kids to where they yeah. need to be. Yeah. I think it, I, th- I think you hit on a really important point there. And um, oh, by the way, while you're talking, I am remembering my own <laughs> personal lessons when I was a kid. I was up from the northwest of England where with where my producers from were listening in at the moment. I'm in a place called Blackpool, which, trust me, has a lot worse weather than Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> Although we haven't got the scary air, airplane flying in. Um, in um, Blackpool, but the top of the tower is pretty scary on a windy day. Um, those swim schools were definitely, it was definitely a mixed bag. Like I, I remember being loving going through various different experiences as a child and a, a young adult to either really loving swimming to really hating the entire experience. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was that prescriptive one lane fits all one one way of teaching must be you know have to go through those those exact same lessons every single week you can't treat people exactly the same because we're not all the same we all have different capabilities we all have different fears we all have different irrational needs so it's so lovely to hear a a business owner that that can can see that 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 needs to be personalized to the people that are paying you the money for the experience. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just so important, and that's why we try to have a customer-focused response. But it's also that then your teachers aren't sort of glazing over because they've been three hours of teaching the exact same thing for the whole day. They're more engaged because of the fact that they can run different stuff and they, you know, like it just makes the whole atmosphere different. Um, You know, and we feel like, and, and then, 
I'm not saying that things are perfect by any means. We're always still learning and we're always still trying to develop. And we have a very collaborative approach that, yes, I am the owner and effectively at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. But I'm very responsive in terms of like we will have staff discussions about particular levels. We've got a Facebook group that we talk in and, and you know, we come up with things. We have a once a year the whole staff gets together to rewrite the curriculum if we feel that it needs adjustments you know it's so that they feel that they have ownership as part of being in the business as well that they can you know uh, that they're able to make suggestions and that they've heard and that they're valued love it absolutely love your approach um i can't believe that we're we're coming up to an hour Um, I could literally talk to you for hours. One thing that we didn't touch on, and it was a recent tweet, I think it may have even been today, could have been yesterday, but, you know, we're talking about the upside, but what was was the news that came out that clearly shows that you and I are not just living in this tiny bubble of positivity? Well, it was super exciting, actually. Um, um, I have my mother who clips out things out of the newspaper <laughs> and sends them to me, and she had actually found an article yes. on small businesses. And awesome. so Zero had announced their small business um, report for September, and it showed that small to medium enterprises in New Zealand had recorded 3.5% revenue growth from where we were last year. So almost 4%. In this. And so it's just such an amazing statistic because it, it sort of fits in with the narrative that many of the local businesses I talk to, ones that I'm making collaboration with, some of the Champagne Lives, we're all recording that we're busy and run off our feet, but we're being sent this doom and gloom picture. And here we go. Small to medium businesses are up 4% from where we were this time last year. I mean, that's a massive statistic considering what is going on with us. Considering 2020, I mean, no one's expecting that. And that's certainly not any of the commentary that I'm seeing. There's one guy on LinkedIn, (laughs) Chris Baker, who is awesome. And he he shared the the same zero one yesterday across that platform. But he does so often seem to be a lone voice out there with with positivity and i was so pleased when when i when i saw you both share that i mean it's such good news so so go new zealand small to medium-sized enterprises we're doing okay and we we need to make sure that we believe that because otherwise it becomes a a self-fulfilling prophecy the more we listen to the naysayers we kind of talk ourselves into um a, a further depression i think Well, I also think that imposter syndrome is very real, right? So I started this business, I was 28 years old, started this business and everything that you get, you get shown in the media and everywhere else. And we're talking about role models and all of that kind of stuff. All you get told is that, like, already I didn't fit the demographic of who a business owner really is. Am I really a business owner? Because I don't believe in the things that they believe in. You see, you know, when people have that mindset that, you've got to screw the workers' wages down, all that kind of stuff. I always felt that I had minority views and that I was a bit weird for feeling the way that I did and the way that I ran my business. But now, having seen, after being in business for 12 years, I still see those same voices in the media speaking for business, and I still don't agree with them. But it's been so good to meet other people that actually are like, hey, I feel out of step too. I feel like I'm this crazy person because I believe that treating people is a good thing. Well, we have to we have to be very careful right now to be listening to experts. Um, I don't know if you've read the book Black Swan. Um, it's a it's a wonderful book, and we have definitely been through a Black Swan event. No one saw this coming, and no, it's changed no everything. And it's changed everything. But one of the key um, the key 
takeouts that always sticks with me is after a Black Swan or during a Black Swan event, experts haven't got a clue what's going on. They're just guessing the same as you and I are. With They're seeing the same fresh, brand-new data, and they're trying to, in some ways, they're more dangerous because they're trying to fit it around the narrative that they have built their reputations upon. You know, it was very easy when it wasn't a shared experience to stand up and say that this isn't working. But when we're all suffering with the pandemic and we're all seeing the the impact of good governance, good leadership, good communication, um, good consistency, well then, well, then those experts, I think, have got to be quite careful as well of maybe just waiting to, you know, maybe, maybe testing the tone in the room a little bit more. Um, instead of thinking that oh well we're 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 having a bad situation so everybody must be. But do you think it's um, a whole thing about being in an echo chamber though? Like sometimes I have, I, sometimes I would say things to myself, going, well, is it that you know I'm talking to specific kinds of business owners, the people that are in my social circle, etc. Are they just telling me what I want to hear, or are they just having similar experiences to me because that's the people I choose to have around me? But when you see a stat like the one that came up with the zero businesses across all sectors, et cetera, then you know that you're hearing the right information. You know, yeah. like it's not just your echo chamber of people. Yeah. What, what I would love is any small to medium-sized enterprise that, that's listening to this or anybody that knows an SME that is struggling, I believe that further understanding your customer, I mean, the, the, if you haven't started trying to understand your customer better, by now, now is the time to start, and I'd love you to reach out because I, what, I, what, I, what, what we see with Sarah and little Marcos is without doubt confirmation that looking after the humans inside and outside your organization really is now the new future of business, in, in my opinion. If, if you're going to have a sustainable business moving forward, then there has to be um, a, a more um, inclusive approach to it we are not we're the first team players i see business owners as being the first team players you know ties nicely into my halftime orange <laughs> name that, we're, that we need a refreshment but we're the ones leading when we're doing well the country does well but we should be doing well not at the expense of the country um so um yeah please share this with anybody in the small business community um also i would like to introduce the small business community to the champagne liberal business owners association <laughs> so sarah i know i don't want to take up too much more of your time um it's it's uh, an hour with it's gone it's gone like that hasn't it really yeah, has um, but but tell us all about it i'm as I, as i said to you i think in the green room i'm a terribly inactive but big fan member of it of it but I'd, I'd love for you to share where it came from and 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 what you're trying to achieve with it well even it, if it's just a drink champagne well <laughs> that was kind of the start but um effectively as twitter likes to do as much as i love that platform you can loathe it as well um and there was a man that had pronounced that no small business in New Zealand would be left-leaning and no one would vote left. So someone had uh, ironically tagged me. This is prior to the election. It would have been a good six weeks before. And I got tagged into it and said, oh, well, <laughs> I, I introduced you to Sarah. I think she'd beg to differ. And I didn't come in and troll him. And I just said, hey, yeah, I have 12 staff and I vote left. Um I vote left because it sits with my values, et cetera. And I was really kind. I tried re I try really hard with my interactions on Twitter because I'm actually me and I um, 
I don't have an avatar and all of that kind of stuff. So I try really hard to be professional considering people can see where I work. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I try not I'm, I'm terrible at that. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at that. I know that sometimes I post stuff that I shouldn't be posting. <sighs> yeah. But, so um, difficult not to get baited, though. I, did I know. So, so I try really hard. And that person came back and said, well, you own a swim school, so you're just a champagne liberal business owner, so you don't actually count. The only businesses that count are rural and main road New Zealand. No offence intended. So I took a screenshot of it and I put it on my Twitter and I just made it a joke. Like, I mean, it's hard to be offended when someone is so... It has to change the narrative so much to fit what they wanted. Now that someone real has said, oh, actually, <laughs> this is what That's I think. Right. Um, so I posted and I was, and then it just became this thing because it went viral and people were like, so if I happen to have a business on the main road, but I like champagne, can I join? And I was like, sure. And someone else was like, if I, <laughs> I have skills that um, would help businesses and I like to drink champagne. Can I be in the group? Yes. I drink whiskey. Is that fine? Sure. And so Great. We- I was about to ask that question. That's the question yeah. I was about so to ask. Effectively, we came up with some really loose membership criteria, a number of um, which was that you could drink champagne, drink another alcoholic beverage or not drink at all. And you could be a business owner, someone who supports businesses or had business support skills, um, use QR codes, be kind and... <laughs> And be able to be, you needed to be liberal or could cope with being in a room with, of liberals without trolling us, you know. So very loose membership criteria. I had a few people that slid into my DMs and I had a marketing firm that wanted to do the logo for us and someone else wanted sweatshirts and it all became really crazy. So now we have, you know, sweatshirts and shopping bags and logos and um, we even have champagne glasses and everyone and so it all started out as a bit of a piss take but now it's kind of evolved into something else because there's a whole number of us that have met that have really similar people-centered values um, that have decided that there was a need for other business voices other than the usual ones that you hear Um, and we just yeah we just really felt that we'd sort of cotton on to something. So we had a massive launch event and got everything sponsored and, and you have a bit of a laugh, but we had it at Sweet Release uh, Vegan Restaurant. We had sponsored kabucha and sponsored organic wine. Wow. <laughs> you know, only the champagne libs can. Um, and <laughs> But we now have, we've sort of evolved and there's another, we've got a Christchurch event tomorrow night. We're having a Christmas. I saw party. that. I've, I've liked the tweets and I, I, I wish I could come. It's a bit too far, unfortunately. But we'll have to get an Auckland chapter. Well, we are. To, uh... We're planning to run another event maybe in February in Auckland, you know, because we have a number okay. of members there. And so now we have 380 members. Um, someone is talking about writing a website for us so that we can have a business directory of people that have similar values that people can see who the businesses are that are involved. We're looking to run some business courses so that you don't have the unhappy experience of um, a sort of that side of things happened because someone went to an EMA um, business networking group where they were talking about employment and she was going to be employing for the first time and was really excited and for those listening at home that's the employers manufacturers association um so she went through a course they're free and at that course they made her feel so terrible about the way that she wanted to do business that she came away feeling quite deflated because they put pictures up of what would you hire this person it happened to be someone that had tattoos and had piercings which she had and everyone in the room laughed and yet she looked like 
the person in the picture. Um, it's they, unbelievable what people do, isn't it? Yeah. Like just, and the oh, person taking the course, they were all having laughs about the way that you screw employees. I mean, it was pretty diabolical. But unfortunately, a number of the business networking groups in New Zealand that you can go to, I've gone to some and my values just do not align with them. We And I don't want to do business with people who don't think that what I'm doing is a good thing or, you know, like you want to do business with people who care about their staff. And, and I just found myself so out of step with a number of the ones that I went to. And now suddenly we've got this group of people who kind of felt the same way. And we talked about our values and had a lot of discussion about, you know, what are we and who are we? And a lot of what came up is that we are all people-centred, that we give a, we, we, we care about our customers, we all pay at least a living wage, or if we don't, we're working towards it because we know that it's really important to do so because, you know, we have heaps of different businesses that are at different stages of the path. It's, it's nice to be part of a supportive and collaborative group that want to help other businesses succeed rather than, you know, I think there's room for everybody. I don't think that we need to pull others down in order to make ourselves better and I thank a lot of the people that are in that group and it's now becoming something else where um, it started from someone having a go at me on Twitter and we've managed to turn it into effectively a little bit of a movement I feel where we're showing people that there is a different way that we can do things and I and I think the time is right especially after COVID where you you yourself said um, that people are enjoying you know they want to feel looked after that there are a number they of... Need to. They need to. Our, 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 our needs have become more basic. Yeah. Like if you think of that Maslow hierarchy of needs, like we're not as, we're not as bothered when we, we've got an insecure future with a pandemic on the, on the outside about the self-actualization. It's much more about are we safe? Are we f- being able to feed ourselves? Are our families safe? Are our friends safe? It's, it's, we're focusing more on the basics of safety and being looked after and connection. And so that's why when companies who are doing well in that area, they are connecting with these new changing needs. And those that aren't, well, they're just, they're they're those tone deaf people that um, we have come up in this conversation. Absolutely. And I mean, um, if we've got time, I mean, another key reason behind the champagne lip. So it did start as a bit of a piss take, but yeah, um, Good work. And it was fun <laughs> and our launch party was amazing and we all drank a lot of champagne. But people actually did business there because a number of groups that you belong to, you have to prepare a speech to come or you have to do this. And this was just, you turned up, there was nothing expected of you. You didn't have to pay a membership fee. You turn up and you met other like-minded people that you could talk to and do business with, you know. And and it was, it was really beneficial, that first one. And I during lockdown had the misfortune of being invited to a business um, mentoring group. Someone said, hey, look, they're free at the moment. They're trying to build this. And so I got invited to this group. And the person had obviously made an assumption that the six people that were in his group all voted similarly to how he did. And when he Mm. to make jokes about Nazi Germany and comparing Jacinda Ardern's regime to (laughs) Nazi Germany, he talked about the fact that he should have just had Honey from the mongrel mob whack his ex-wife. Oh, no. Of course. There were a whole lot of perceptions that he had obviously felt comfortable enough as the person taking this group that everybody else in the group agreed with him and all the other five people in the group laughed. And so I definitely have for a number of years felt like a fish out of water with effectively my belief system around people-centered business and finding all of these other businesses because we are up to 380 members now it's refreshing to know that there's more of us out there and that actually 
more often than not, a small business is people-centered because whenever I hire someone, they're such a big part of my staff because I don't hire many people, you know? Um, if I hire 10 people and I hire one, that's a massive amount of people that, you know, a massive amount of investment for me. Uh, it is, it is. Um, and it's, it's an investment in people as well. Like I, 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 part of the reason we started Halftime Orange or I started Halftime Orange was because I think it's a crime that people swap they exchange their most valuable resource time and then they get treated badly or not cared for. I mean, come on. The people, we've, we've all got the same number of hours in the day. We've got these wonderful human beings who are providing their time so that we can build our futures with it. That comes with a responsibility to make sure they go home at the end of the day or the end of their shift or whatever it might be a little happier a little more upbeat, you know, it should be, it should be a place where they enjoy themselves and that they feel looked after. Absolutely. And, and it's really important, you know, and people aren't always going to be doing well personally and all of those kind of things. And so it's part of our job, especially, I mean, in my business, yes, um, there are a number of young people that we hire. You know, traditionally, most of the people that work in the sun school industry, particularly are students who are going through university because it's really well-paid work without having to work until three in the morning the night before an exam and things because the shifts are at really um, good hours, you know. You don't have to mm. work past six o'clock at night and the weekend shifts finish at about one. So it's really good, well-paid work for the shifts that you do um, and easier than working in hospital and other places um, in terms of the hours at night and weekends and all that kind of stuff. And so traditionally a lot of my average, the average age would be about 22 in my swim school. I have some people that have wanted to do it as a career, but it's very hard to give them career advancement because there aren't the qualifications necessarily to do. Um, and, and thankfully that's been addressed during COVID. There's now an apprenticeship scheme in aquatics, which is really exciting. And it's part of that yeah there are a number of things that are happening in that space so I don't want people to feel like I'm completely begging the industry and that they aren't trying to address those things and they are but for a long time that hasn't been the case and so a number of the people that you hire are aged between 18 to 25 some of them are in really precarious personal positions with a housing crisis in Wellington and all of that kind of stuff so it's even a responsibility that if I want to have good staff make sure that they come to work in a really good space I have to make sure I'm paying them enough that their personal circumstance isn't as much of an issue like if you're struggling to pay so true if you're struggling to pay rent and if you're struggling to eat how effective as a staff member are you going to be getting in my pool? You're not going to be. Exactly, exactly. And that has safety implications, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, before I let you go, my shout out to my producer, Phil. He's, he's put some fantastic um, facts up about why. You know, it's, it's, it's all very well, you and I, talking about how we need to be nicer to, to <laughs> our fellow humans. But what about the, the, there are people that need an ROI associated with this. To prove it, but it's there. This isn't this isn't just two nice people talking about how it would be good to treat people well. You mean we're not in fairyland? No, no. we're not. We're not. I mean, <laughs> this this should come. This should be quite interesting to some people. The average employee exit costs a third of an annual salary. 
So how many people are you constantly losing? Like the impact on the customer experience. When I was at the New Zealand uh, NZME um, working in the magazines, we were told that it was a quarter of a million dollars to lose a member of staff. Like that would that would be the bottom impact. And yet we'd come out of those training meetings and there would still be <laughs> no care whether or not people left or not. It was staggering that the financial impact is understood. Um, the other... Um, What's another one here? 89% um, of workers at companies that support well-being initiatives are more likely to recommend their company as a, as a good place to work, which saves money on, on hiring. Um, and, one, and one other fun fact. Oh, I was going to say, can I say something in that? For, for three years, I did not put one single advert in for staff because I would get new staff through my staff at one point. How much did that save you? Um, I'd say it probably saved me about $3,000 over that time, not having to... This isn't chump change, is it? Well, especially to small to medium-sized enterprises, three grand on your bottom line is a significant number. It's not just the advertising costs. It's the meeting the people for interviews. It's the time I send. Then I'd have to... My manager would come to the interview, so I'd have to pay him to be there, you know, and we might be doing three weeks of interviews. So, you know... Um, it all adds up. Sorry, just it certainly does. <laughs> certainly does. And um, a completely unrelated fact, um, but I, I'm going to be really nice to Phil today because actually he bought me a new mic for no reason whatsoever. It just came oh. through the post <laughs> yesterday. I'll, I'll be honest, it, it's probably so that I don't sound quite so tinny and crap like, that I did on my last mic. So so there's, I'm, I'm sure there's reason there. But I just wanted to want just a massive thank you. I want it's easier to set up as well. And it's it's heavier, it's high quality. But he wants me just to say, because we've, you know, Twitter has got some um, people who don't say so nice things about him, but Phil met his wife on Twitter, so it must be a good platform. So there we are. <laughs> hey, um, so many more places to go. I mean, I, I know that we're birds of a feather, similar like-minded individuals. I... Can't wait to get more involved with um, the, the Champagne Liberals uh, Business Owners Association. And I'm, I think we should probably, if, if you'd be open to share this conversation when it gets, um, when it gets pu published, um, a nice conversation um, between two, two of its members. And um, I hope that, and certainly how I understand it, the, the customer-centric, the people-centric approach would really... Um, the, the, the membership would really get what we're talking about, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Before we go, um, for those in Wellington who would like to get in contact for Little Marcos, we'll put all of the links in the show notes. Um, Sarah, what other, what other ways would you like people to reach out to you or get in contact if they found some of what we've talked about interesting and for what reasons? Um, just let us know and we'll uh, we'll put those in the show notes. So, yeah, what, what would be the best? Uh, how, how should people get in contact with you? Um, email is always good because I'm pretty much one of those terrible people that's always on my phone all the time and has to put limits on myself <laughs> while I'm not on them. Yeah. Turn the phone Very to at 8 p.m. No, I'm <laughs> and, um, yeah, so either email or phone calls are good or Twitter. I'm pretty active on there. So we can always have discussions and, uh, yeah, and, um, our membership is pretty loose. The criteria for, for Champagne Libs, if people want to, there's a Facebook page and also a, uh, sorry, a Facebook group and Twitter angle. 
great. So we will we will leave links to um, you and to um, the the CLBO Association. I don't know. Does anybody call it that? Probably not. <laughs> At the moment, um, kind of uh, colloquial term is clobber. <laughs> Clobber, clobber, cool. Well, yeah. we'll link to we'll we'll have all the links to clobber. Um, Sarah, it's just been an absolute delight. I knew it would be. Um, I knew that we'd have such an, this this interesting discussion. You've been incredibly insightful, and I think as I've as I keep saying, anybody who is um, trying to understand their customers more. They can learn so much from the great work that Sarah's doing, especially from her leadership, which, again, is the most important part of customer experience. If you're failing, check out your leadership because that's usually where the problems are starting, unfortunately. Okay, Sarah, well, thank you once again, and uh, we hope you have a very good day. You too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat to you today. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everybody. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening today. I hope you got some really solid value out of the conversation. If you did get some value, please consider subscribing using any of the links below. We are on all major podcast platforms. And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or via our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you next time.